remember where you are. Are you in Bolton? No, I'm in I'm in Burton actually. Oh, very nice. How are the team doing? I've I've taken my eyes off Albion. Um, they had a very poor start to the season under um, under Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, and now he's he's left, and he's left his assist. Well, his assistant has taken over, and they've uh, they've improved a bit. League One in general is a is a very it's it's a weird league this season because you've you've kind of essentially got a Premier League kind of o three o four rejects with you know Portsmouth, Ipswich, Bolton, Charlton. All, all sorts, Sheffield Wednesday, Derby, and then you've just got a bunch of teams where, with greatest respect to those teams, they're, they're not quite the same historical calibre as, as some of the big names. Um, and Burton, I think, are in that second pack, but it's all a bit of a, a mismatch at the moment. No one's really, can't really tell who's going up, who's going down. Ipswich looks like they were having a great start to the season, but then they lost at the weekend, so anyone's guess really well I would love two things one for someone to write a book about League One because Nigel Tassel wrote a book about the championship called The Hard Yards to my knowledge no one has written a book even though Andy Holt pops up I was reading Gary Neville's new book uh, talking about the North West he used to live in Bolton do you know that Gary Neville used to live in Bolton I did yes yeah was this while he was at Man United or afterwards um I don't actually know. I mean, I doubt. I think he lives in Chester, where you know all of all the, the, edge, the yeah. ex, yeah, the ex Man United players seem to, to gravitate towards. Mm. But yeah, no, I, I don't think he's got any particular uh, strong affiliation with Bolton because, uh, well, Bolton fans, I don't, <laughs> don't think are particularly fond of him. At least from his playing days, also uh, now probably. Yes, because he played many times against Sam Allardyce's Bolton. In fact, before we go any further. I was at a meeting in Soho and we were, I was talking about football with someone and the guy spotted Sam Allardyce. I saw the back of his head and I went, yes, I recognise the back of Sam Allardyce's head. I don't know what he was doing there, but he's kind of a man of leisure now, Allardyce. I don't think he's ever officially come out and you know announced he's retiring and I'm sure... I mean, I'd, I'd say when Watford next change their manager, but, but even by their standards, if they were to change their manager again, that would be pretty extraordinary. But I'm sure it's one of those where if uh, if the right offer came along, he'd uh, he'd get back involved. I mean, there was some, I think, probably quite unfortunately, fanciful talk of, of getting him back involved at, um, at Bolton at some stage. I know he's, he, he did. A, he managed a charity team at the club um, a couple of years ago. He's been back a few times. Um, he's obviously, you know, in, in terms of kind of where he's still beloved. I think uh, I think he's still very fondly held in uh, in Sunderland and Blackburn. But yeah, Bolton, I think he's is his is his number one stomping ground. So he'd be welcome back if uh, if ever Ian Abbott leaves us oh um, gosh how is um i know we, we've got to get on to match of the century but i'm enjoying this too much because we haven't spoken matt since no. february the 11th 2021 i haven't remember remember that off the top of my head you were the 93rd visitor to the football library and you were talking about how you had this idea for a book about the match of the century which is written and it comes out uh, November 3rd, isn't it? Yes, November 3rd, yeah. Congratulations. Um, Thank you very much. So we, we're going to talk about the, the tactics and culturally and historically. But yes, Ian Evitt interests me because he was Ian Holloway's captain, I think, at Blackpool. Yes. Yes. Yep. Did very well at Barrow and uh, moved to Bolton 
knowing that there wouldn't be that much money, but knowing that he could test himself against some fine managers. So I'd surely Bolton aren't fed up of Ian Everett now, given that the football's much better than it used to be. Oh, no, I think, you know, in general, again, like I think I touched on earlier, we, we kind of had a, a slightly wobbly start to the season. We then we then went on a really, really strong run. We now we've now had a, a couple of disappointing losses in a row. I think in general the the the, the vibes around are, are very very good. Obviously got promoted out out of uh, of League Two, which was as as we've seen with with many kind of clubs over the years, it's very easy to get relegated from from one division into one that you're not that familiar with and think, oh, you know, we're too good for this. We'll we'll bounce straight back out, and then suddenly three or four years down the line, you're still there. So to get out of League Two was was his. Even though we we had a you know a budget that was that put us towards the top end of, of League Two, we were still under embargo and that kind of thing. So he he did a very good job there. He, he's I think he's he's very ambitious personally. So he is not one to sort of try and temper expectations. He's very much of a mindset that you know last season was a we should try and name to be a top half team this season it's let's try and get promoted and that's still we're, we're just outside the playoffs at the moment so I think in general um, everyone's very happy I think it, it's, it's an ironic twist really the, the kind of you mentioned we're, we're playing very nice football now and we are some of the football is, is absolutely fantastic but ironically the, the teams that seem to have our number at the moment are the teams that are playing what you, you might term kind of the classic Bolton way which we played under Sam Allardyce when ironically we've we've kind of become one of the sort of arsenals of League One and suddenly you've got the (laughs) likes of Cheltenham and Forest Green playing the Bolton role and uh, I think in general Bolton fans are trying very hard not to to come across too Scrooge-like and too uh, Arsene Wenger-like and uh, yeah remember where our our, uh, Cloth was cut under under Big Sam. And who's playing the Kevin Davis role? <laughs> Unfortunately, Kevin Davis role doesn't really exist under the uh, in the Everett framework. I mean, we do have John Daddy Bodvarsson, who is the you know I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know is the Icelandic striker. He's had quite a few years in English football in the Championship, so he, he's probably the closest thing we've got to a uh, a pure target man, kind of Kevin Davis type figure. Um, but yeah, he's. he's um, I, I, there's only one Kevin Davies. There's, there'll, be, there'll never make another one like him. Yes. Um, so, just, uh, just to ask you a quick quiz question: uh, Who put the ball in the Munich net? That would have been Kevin Davies. Kevin Davies. After, after Ricardo Gardner, after his you know, Ricardo Gardner scoring his first goal in about God knows how many years it was, and it happened to be against Bayern Munich in uh, in Germany, which is always yeah a, a nice one to look back on. Can't take that away from him. Chris Flanagan, who is at 442 Magazine, wrote the book about Bolton's UEFA Cup journey. European football is a distant dream for Bolton, not even the Anglo-Italian Cup if they bring it back. I think Bolton will be uh, keen to get back into the championship. How many players in League One are going to the World Cup? What a question that is. I mean, Off the top of your head, there's someone who watches the league because there must be two or three going to like Zimbabwe or whoever. To be honest, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. I just, I think generally the the kind of the pooling of players is is so 
geared towards the Premier League now, unfortunately, because like you say, you used to have, you know, you'd have a nation where, you know, they'd, they'd have a couple of players who, who just happened to find themselves in, in League One or League Two even, and yeah, got into the World Cup that way. But I think now nowadays, you know, the, the quality of foreign not even foreign top divisions, but foreign kind of second, third divisions is, is catching up to England somewhat. Um, so I, I, the short answer is I don't know. I mean, Bolton, we have uh, a few players who play quite regularly for Northern Ireland. We've had Josh Sheehan, who's been in the Wales squad a couple of times, although just as he broke in last season, he did his ACL. So And he's, he's now just coming back. So unfortunately, I think had he had... You know, escape that injury. He, yeah, he, he would have been on the fringe of the Welsh squad, and obviously they're going to the World Cup, so that would have yeah. been um, that would have been probably one of the few opportunities in the league. The game that I'm not looking forward to. This is uh, we're talking on October 18th. There's still is it three weeks until the, the break before the World Cup? Not that I care, but players are dropping like flies. Isaac and Diego Jota. There are Reese James is touch and go. Who knows? Calvin Phillips may be the one. We knew this would happen. We knew that the World Cup happening in December would deny several players the chance to play a tournament. Are you, Matt Clough, watching any of the World Cup? I mean, I, I will be. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think you, you, you know, injuries is one of many good points you can you can uh, put against this World Cup. Not least, you know, the human rights aspects, which are, you know. There's, there's, there's no excusing it. it it's uh, it is fast to call that the, the World Cup is um, is happening where it is. To be perfectly honest, you can't it's, have uh, a global competition in such a closed country. There's there's lots of restrictions on the uh, media. I can't wait to see Gary. Lynch, well, I'm not, but I can't wait to see Gary Lynch go. Uh, what awful! The the kafala system was awful. Anyway, Alan Jack Grealish is starting on the left. It's just it's going to be too much of a disconnect, which is why I'm going back all the way to November twenty fifth, nineteen fifty three. So this was a few months after the Mortensen uh, Cup final, when Stan Mortensen scored three times at Wembley, uh, and then he had a nightmare because um, it was England three, Hungary six. Fun fact. Four Blackpool players played for England that day. Matt Clough, you've written a book about this game. Can you name them? I, I can. So you've got you've got Harry Johnson, who was the centre half. You've uh, you've got Stan Mortensen, who was the centre forward, who you've already mentioned there. And then you have, of course, Stanley Matthews uh, on the wing. And then uh, you've got uh, Ernie Taylor, Good. of course, who was the yeah inside, the inside forward, forward, one of the two correct. inside forwards, playing number eight. Uh, and they came yeah. up against a Hungary team with seven Kishpesh Ronved players. I'm not going to ask you to name them. Um, <laughs> but um, this game is, is well known culturally, tactically. It featured in uh, Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid. Uh, before we talk about the game, your sources for this game, because the match was screened. I watched it on YouTube. It's all there and the highlights are there with yeah. Ken Wollstone Holmes commentary. But where did you source... Uh, the material, because you weren't alive, your parents probably weren't alive in 1953, this is slipping into ancient football history. Yeah, no, it's it's, um, it's a really good question. Like you say, it's it's one of the sort of the few games from the early 50s that you can watch in its entirety. Anyone listening, I'm assuming, has an interest in it, so um, it is available on YouTube, like you say. I mean, there have been some, some fantastic writers kind of who've looked at the match in a certain way as you mentioned so Jonathan Wilson is obviously the 
the godfather of, um, I guess, football history writing. I, there's a few other claimants to that that crown, but I think certainly from the, the tactical perspective and, like, say, inverting the pyramid, he also did a fantastic book on Hungarian football history in general. One of the focuses of that is, is the, um, you know, the impact kind of, of, of the Holocaust on, on Hungarian football, that kind of thing. Um, so there, there have been a few writers who tackled it. Obviously, going further back, you've got you know, writers like Bob Ferrier, who, who wrote, who was a newspaper columnist, but he also wrote a book with uh, Walter Winterbottom, who was the England manager, and and Billy Rice as well. One thing I was I was hoping to achieve with the book was to give people a real sense of of why the match mattered. It's you know, it's not a 250-page match report. It's uh, sort of, I guess, I, I don't know the exact specifics, something like 180 pages of of the build-up, of the context of effectively why it mattered. So, you know, newspaper footage, histories of Hungary, histories of England, that was that was all in play, really. I'd like to think it's more of a kind of social history of the match, you know, political history of the matches as much as the sporting one. Thank you for that. I haven't managed to get the great Paul Hayward into the football library, but I I imagine when this goes out at the beginning of November, we will have heard a lot from Paul because he's just written a book called England Football, which it's not a good title. England Football. This this is the biography of of the England team for their entire history. Absolutely right. And um, one of the games that it'll pivot on is probably USA 1 England 0 in the 1950 Brazil World Cup, but also this game three years later. So I am yeah. fascinated from you to see whether what happened in 1953 has any relation to the defeat, the arrogance, the hubris of the World Cup in 1950. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I mean firstly, I think just, just touching on the, the, the book you mentioned there by Paul Hayward, that is a, you know, I can't wait to read that because that is a, a serious undertaking. There is a lot of history to cram in there. But like you say, I think that those two matches, so the one I focus on here and the the 1950 uh, debacle against the US, yeah, they're, they're two of the pivotal matches in England's history. I think if you if you want to understand so much about the England team, where they are today, the sort of psychological baggage that comes with watching England, playing for England, managing England, you have to know about these two matches. Just for a bit of context, the 1950 World Cup was, was the first World Cup England played in. Um, before that, the, the World Cup had obviously been going since 1930 and had several editions before the, um, the Second World War. And the home nations basically had, had withdrawn themselves from the running, partially down to sort of, uh, kind of arcane arguments over amateurism, but also in part because I think deep down they knew that a World Cup would offer teams an opportunity to beat them which obviously they didn't want to do they they preferred being able to organize friendlies on their own terms and and pick and choose their opposition to it to an extent so that they could continue to claim to be the best um but part of it was was purely the kind of the, the conceit that you know between england and scotland they they had codified the rules they had effectively invented more than football as we know today then you know there was no need for a world cup and in fairness to England and, uh, and Scotland and the FAs, that was a view kind of echoed across the continent. So, for example, Italy played England in, uh, in I think, 38, uh, after they had won the World Cup. And in Italy, that was very much billed as, you know, the championship of the world. 
there was definite sense in, in in the countries that had won the World Cup that without England and Scotland and, and Wales being involved, there was a lack of legitimacy. So the 1950 World Cup was obviously a huge deal. It was it was the first time that the home nations were involved. England were the only home nation that played. Yeah, it was it was a it was a disaster from start to finish. Really, it was in Brazil. The trip over was tough. There was no real allowance. Obviously, nowadays you hear all about the you know the, the, the team's base and where they where they're located, what the hotels like, what how many chefs they're flying over. There was none of that. And in fact, some other teams were doing that, but were shocked that England just basically rocked up and decided they were going <laughs> to that was it. They were going they're ready to play. And yeah, like you say, it, it went disastrously. They they played a, a, a USA team. They had been beaten by an England B team literally two or three weeks before. Um, the USA team was, was made up of all sorts of, you know, it, it, they, they were US in name only, basically. They, they were sort of journeymen, semi-professionals. Uh, most had full-time jobs. The US um, press were so pessimistic about the uh, prospects of the team. They only sent, well, only one journalist flew down to Brazil. And then, yeah, England sort of laid siege to their goal, but couldn't find a way through. Um, USA scored through Joe Gachins, who was a, a Haitian player who was, yeah, again, taking the uh, the American oath just before the match. And, yeah, that was it, uh, 1-0. And the net result should have been, obviously, a huge period of introspection by the English FA. How, how could this have happened? What went wrong? How did it go so wrong? Why were we so ill-prepared? Um, but for a variety of reasons, it, it didn't, basically. One of the reasons was that England uh, cricket team had just lost a home series against, uh, I believe it's the West Indies, and that was almost as big an aberration in, in the minds of the English press. So that got equal coverage. So that, that kind of covered it up to an extent, but then the bigger problem was, of course, that the, the FA themselves were extremely obstinate, didn't like the idea of uh, entertaining any any prospects of change, because it would, of course, if you do any sort of root and branch review of a, a, an institution like the FA was at the time, it would have very quickly uncovered that perhaps having a bunch of club chairmen who had effectively got their positions, not because they knew anything about football, but because they had money in the local communities they would have been rooted out quite quickly. So there was, it would have been, in their perspective, very much turkeys voting for Christmas. So they had no incentive to, to try and figure out what had gone wrong because they knew it would come back to them effectively. I bet that Paul Hayward's book is going to be absolutely damning of the Football Association. At the time, women were banned from playing. In 1953, who picked the eleven? Was it the selectors or was it the coach? So... Again, I think you're absolutely right. I don't see how you can look at the, the period and not be damning of the FA. Um, it was in, so. In terms of the 1950s, there was a England had instituted a team manager for the first time, Walter Winterbottom, in the late 1940s. This had been um, a project of Stanley Rouse, who was the the secretary of the FA, and was kind of violently opposed by uh, the sort of like you say that the hierarchy, the, the sort of um, people who had a, a seat for life on the FA board, that kind of thing. Again, because it just it threatened their authority, basically. So Winterbottom was the manager, 
but there was a selection committee who were in charge of, of picking the team. And yeah, Winterbottom himself, he was very, he was a very good tactical operator in the sense that he learned over time how to deal with the FA. And there's, there's a quote in the book um, where he talks about effectively he'd he'd often by by the by the time he'd got used to the system of basically him him knowing what players he wanted and often well very rarely being given the team he wanted he would effectively propose a team that he knew would never have a chance of getting through the selection committee but that he knew if he proposed a couple of really radical players out there players they would get shouted down so vociferously that the selection committee might then be uh, more of a mind to be a bit more sympathetic to some of his other choices. So he was in a very odd situation of basically proposing a team that he didn't necessarily even want, but he, he was doing it very tactically to try and get as many of the players he did want in the team and was kind of proposing a few kind of sacrificial names that he knew would, would act as kind of lightning rods and hopefully get the rest of the team through unscathed. So it's clearly a, a very flawed system and to, to make matters worse, when the when the team went to uh, Brazil for the 1950 World Cup, they only took one selector, and so he had he he was the man in charge, so uh, of the squad and the team, which was it, you know looking back, it is mind boggling. But then it's you have to remember that uh, Walter Winterbottom had only been in, in position for a couple of years, and he hadn't really had a chance to stamp his authority. And in fact, when when Alf Ramsey took over. As England manager, it was on the condition that the selection committee was, in effect, abolished. Because he just said, "I'm, you know, if I'm the manager, I'm the manager. I, I can't possibly be expected to work or succeed. You know, if I'm effectively operating with one arm tied behind my back, if I'm trying to do something and implement something and plan something, but then half half of the uh, players I want aren't at my disposal." It's, it's interesting because some would say Gareth Southgate operates with one hand tied behind his back, but we'll try and squeeze that in at the end. Um, just um, to summarise some of these England players, the big ones, Billy Wright, the captain, and Stan Matthews and Stan Mortensen. Someone like Jackie Sewell, who played inside left, or George Robb, outside left. Uh, did you learn a lot about the less heralded England players? I did, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned before, obviously, there's there's a very blackpool heavy contingent and that was the um that was very much the selection committee finally looking at the hungarian team thinking oh they've got a lot of on bed and mtk players uh, maybe we should try and do that because obviously there was this growing realization even amongst the, the sort of stuff shirts at the fa that having players who played week in week out with one another was a good idea as opposed to sort of the every every couple of months getting together having a quick match for England and then never playing with one another again that, that was it was very interesting I mean um, George Robb particularly is a, a you know a real fascinating throwback kind of player because he had only turned professional a couple of months before the match and I believe he was um, I think he he played at the Olympic Games for, for Great Britain and then he, yeah, he didn't. He didn't play for much longer. He, he ended up getting injured, I think. But he was, um, yeah, it, it pretty much the last kind of amateur player who who then went on to become professional. If that makes sense. Like, I, know, yeah. I know, obviously, there's, there's 
players like Jamie Vardy who have been amateur yeah, at one yeah, stage, like, but yeah. he, he had a, an amateur status. And I, I think it was only, only when... He, so he was playing for Spurs as an amateur while being a... Um, I think he was a school teacher. Um, but then it, uh, it transpired that a couple of clubs were looking at him. So Spurs said, look, we, we really need you to, to sign professionally here. Otherwise, uh, someone's going to poach you. That's wicked. And he would have played with Alf Ramsey, of whom more later. Uh, Hungry. why did Grokskis, the goalkeeper, come off 12 minutes from time? So he, he is a Grossix is a, a fascinating character. So he, he came off um, just before the end um, because he'd he'd injured his arm trying to save Alf Ramsey's penalty, which was the third goal of, of England three. But obviously in those days substitutions were very unusual. There, there was normally a rule where you could you could substitute your goalkeeper, and that was about it. Um, and even in, in England, that, that rule wasn't in place So in, in 1953. So it was a bit of a kind of concession to the continental game that they were even allowed to make that substitution. That's but yeah, Grossix is a, he, he's a, he's a fascinating character. He, um, he attempted to defect from Hungary, as, as several of the players did, when um, during the late 40s, as the, the communist um, Rokosi government came to power, and effectively got caught. Never, he, he went to trial, but it was never kind of put in prison or anything like that. But he was under house arrest. He was basically under surveillance 24-7. The, the team by, by 1953 was, was travelling with a group of, basically of secret police agents, um, because the fear was so great that, you know, the, the team would travel to a place like England or France or or anywhere like that and would, would basically just run off. And, and um, Yeah, like what happens in the Olympics, they defect. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And, but to, to make matters worse, so Grossix is being monitored by the secret police. He is under a house arrest. He, is, he, he does know that his name has got a black mark against it because he did try to defect. But to make matters worse, he is a, an enormous hypochondriac. So it's, it's a kind of um, worst of both worlds. So, for example, he, he used to train wearing a, a red cap or beret um, because he was absolutely convinced it warded off like brain tumours. So he was, of, of all the people in the Hungarian team, to uh, be under intense scrutiny from the secret police, he was probably the worst suited for Crikey, it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he, he came out of it okay. He, uh, he lived a good long life. And, um, yeah, he's one, one of the sort of... I think there's, there's a group of... There's, there's Vladimir Bira, who, who played for Yugoslavia. There's obviously Lev Yashin. And then there's Grosvix. And I think you can make a case for all three of them being arguably the sort of the greatest generation or era of, of goalkeepers um, ever, really, because they, they, they really redefine the position. If you... Again, if you if you go actually watch the match on YouTube, you can see Gil Merrick, who is the England goalkeeper and was a, was a very good goalkeeper, had a very uh, I think unfortunate and, and quite sort of England career where he, he was very much made a scapegoat by the press on several occasions. But his style of goalkeeping looks very um, awkward now and, and not very. It's it's very sort of you know the ball is hit, he jumps to try and catch it, that kind of thing. And that's, that's not to denigrate him, that's just very much the style of, of goalkeeping at the time, whereas Grossick is a real athlete and you can see he's, he's got that flexibility, he's got that sort of 
natural kind of cat-like movement to him. So it's it's just one of the yeah the very interesting comparisons between the two sets of players. Thank you for that. The the, the tactics of the game are well known. Uh, Hungary used it. Kitakuti as a withdrawn number nine and the inside forward Kokic and Pushkas were all over the pitch. The diagram in inverting the pyramid shows Sibor, the Hungarian outside left, effectively going everywhere, like a kind of Johan yeah. Cruyff figure. And this was Shebej, the coach, who outfoxed Walter Winterbottom. Would there be a line from Shebej or Bella Gutman to Mikkels to Cruyff to Guardiola? Or is that stretching it too far back? Without question, I, I believe. I think, so obviously it's, it's, it's Sebez and Martin Bacovi, who is the MTK club manager. And again, in, in inverting the pyramid, there's a very good explanation of, of how he came about on, upon the withdrawn number nine. And they basically figured out that the, the WM orthodoxy was so static that any variation on that formation would just completely sort of melt the minds of, of most teams, particularly England, who, who stuck to it incredibly dogmatically, believing it to be the, the sort of be-all and end-all of, of tactics, really. But yeah, I, I, I say in the book, I, I think it's it's very difficult to comprehend how important what Hungary did was, because so many teams either followed the English example or had, like Italy, had, had adapted it somewhat, but then had almost fallen into the same trap of thinking, right, we've, we've got our variation here and it's perfect, so we're not going to change it. And the teams in the 1950s, tactics weren't a... Now Again, nowadays, we, we have a lot of talk about tactics and it's widely acknowledged that you can send out 11 players who are better than the 11 other players, but if the tactics are wrong, you more than likely will lose and that's, that's an accepted part of the game. In the 1950s, that concept just did not exist at all. And what Hungary really did, in effect, was it was almost like thinking the unthinkable. It was it was conceptualising something that not that people had thought of and dismissed, but had just never even conceived as being possible. The English idea was, you know, right, tactics, it doesn't matter. The WM is the WM, and that's, that's the way teams play. Forget about it. It's all about... Can Stanley Matthews beat Mihaly Lantos? Or, you know, can Alf Ramsey stop Zoltan Seaborg? The idea of using tactics as a as an offensive weapon just didn't exist. So, yeah, going back to your, your point about the, sort of the, the total football score of the Dutch right through to Guardiola, I, I think eventually we would have got there. Someone else would have would have had the idea of, like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe we don't have to play in this very rigid formation. But the Hungarians were the team to really do it first and do it on, on such a, you know, a, a huge stage in, in what was called the match of the century. Which took place on November the 25th, 1953, and is the subject of Matt Clough's book. Um, so 180 pages leading up to the game, then the game. We know what happened with England, something in July 1966. Every game was at Wembley. <laughs> But the the horrors, reading the names heard long ago, Jonathan Wilson's book, they came within one match of being champions of the world and then two years later it seemed the whole country was wrecked. So did you feel this overwhelming grief for these Hungarians, whom you must have got very close to researching and looking at Mte Kar and the, the history of Hungary? Did you feel grief? 
when you had to describe what happened after 54? It is, it is extremely sad. One, one of the stories that really stuck with me was, was Sadez, the coach, because he, he was relieved of his duties in 1956, and obviously Hungary had a, an uprising in 1956. It very much briefly looked like it was going to succeed. Then the Soviet Union stepped in, decided they, they couldn't afford a, an embarrassment of that, that scale, stepped in and basically plunged Hungary into a into a nightmare that no one particularly wanted, particularly not the sort of the general public. And when you're in a framework like that, it, it's not like a sort of, oh, I'll, I'll apply for this job, I'll apply for that job. And, and Seves was, was effectively, you know, forgotten about. There was there was no real sort of commemoration of what he'd done. And there's a story, I, I'm afraid I can't remember which source it, I, I found it in, um, but it's in the book and obviously it's, it's, it's uh, given credit to there. But it, Seves basically spent, spent his latter years watching little kids playing football outside of his his apartment and you know occasionally he'd invite them up and he'd show them footage of the film and say you know I was I was the manager of this team and you just think you know nowadays if a if a manager you know the old the old saying is oh I'll never have to to buy a pint in this country again and it's it's a it's, it's a real a real tragedy and then you you think I mean fortunately none of the players in in the Goldman team you know it, it could have been worse a lot of them were able to get out and the ones that didn't, they, they didn't face any, any huge reprisals. I think in large part because, you know, the regime knew if they were to do anything to the Golden team, that, that would really be the, um, you know, the final straw for a lot of Hungarians. But it was a real shame. And, and you, you look at the hung, Hungarian results and you, we, we know countries do have golden generations of players and that kind of thing. So you can't quite say it was absolutely unacceptable and it was it was Hungary would have gone on to to have won you know five or six world cups but you look at the talent they had coming through and the way the team was broken up and yeah I mean at one stage the one entire youth team was was um abroad during the uprising basically saw which way the wind was blowing and and they all defected so that kind of gives you an idea for how kind of extensive the loss of talent was and you know hungry i mean I, uh, up until a couple of months ago you'd say they've never really hit those heights again mm. until they came to england and, and beat us very handily which uh it, it sort of did bring a smile to my face despite being an england fan yes uh, the match of the century england hungary and the game that changed football forever it does have a serial comma there did you argue about this or did you accept that there was always going to be a comma before the end I'm, I'm quite a fan of the uh, the Oxford comment, so I was uh, I was up for that. <laughs> I love the fact that uh, 270, 275 chats in. I think that's the first time we've mentioned Oxford commas. Uh, the book is out on the History yes, Press. Uh, it retails at twenty pounds. You can get it cheaper elsewhere. Um, is there a third book, or are you quite exhausted after this one? I mean, after after the first book, I said I won't do another football book. And I certainly won't do another football book about the 1950s. And here we are. So I've not got anything planned yet. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be something along fairly soon. The, the first book, by the way, was Lofty about Nat Lofthouse, The Lion of Vienna, uh, which is in the football library and it's joined by the match of the century. Matt, best of luck to Ian Evert and Super Bolton Wanderers. Uh, at, is it called thank The Reebok so again? Much. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. First line, the line, the line.